You know, I've hit some really low moments in my expeditions, right? Three weeks ago, I fell into a crevasse in Antarctica and nearly died on a project. American endurance athlete, Colin O'Brady. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Colin O'Brady. He's a Portland guy, he's an adventurer. He has climbed the highest mountain on every continent on Earth. He's guy the last degree of the North and South Pole. He wrote a book about it called The Impossible First. When I kind of realized that I feel like life is kind of on this spectrum, we experience it, and I kind of equate it to this experience of one to 10. One being our lowest low moments and 10 being our high highs. Those ones, I realize, are connected to our 10s. We don't really get to the 10s in spite of our ones, but we get there because of our ones. Really, to me, that's a reframe that's been super powerful and has allowed me to have the courage to experience you know, moments of discomfort, knowing it's opening up the doorway to you know, exponential success and fulfillment. So as a dad now, does anything change on what you consider to be a 10 or a one? Do you mitigate risk at all, being a dad? Tribe listeners, I have an extremely exciting announcement for all of you. Do you want to come hang out with Cody Sanchez, David Osborne, David Green, Rich Roll, and even yours truly down in Austin, Texas? Well, let's do it. May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd for the first time ever. GoBundance, the exclusive millionaire membership group, is opening up an event to anyone, man, woman, millionaire, or not, and we're calling it the Austin Entrepreneurial Summit. At the AES, you'll meet all those people I mentioned, plus GoBundance members on both the men's and women's side, and I'll be there hanging out the entire time. Every event I've ever attended for GoBundance has given me a disproportionate return on the money spent and the time spent to get there. And this is the biggest one that GoBundance has ever done. So if you're a member, not a member, and you're looking to supercharge the second part of your year 2024, this event in May is a great way to get that all kickstarted. Go to GoBundance.com slash AES right now for early bird pricing for members and guests. And warning, the power of GoBundance events is that it holds you accountable long after you're gone to achieving whatever goals you've set. So this event will change your life. GoBundance.com slash AES. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Gruber. I'm here live in Stovermont with a bunch of guys that are about to clap the GoBundance champions. What's up, guys? <laughs> we got a really cool guest today. My guest, Colin O'Brady, in 2016, set the Explorer Grand Slam and seven summit speed records. He became the fastest person to complete the adventure challenges in 139 and 131 days, respectively. He also, more famously and more recently, did the first solo unsupported and unassisted crossing of the continent of Antarctica, which has been chronicled in his book, The Impossible First, and also the 12-hour walk, which we have right here on our table. So Colin, man, welcome. Great to be here with you all. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. Let's talk about unsupported, unassisted solo crossing of Antarctica. What is unsupported? What is unassisted? Yeah, so obviously, you know, historically people have, you know, first arrived to Antarctica in the early 1900s, um, and then they reached the South Pole, Amundsen, a famous race of a Norwegian Amundsen and Scott to see who could get to the South Pole first in 1911, reached the South Pole. But, you know, all sorts of incredible scientific research and projects had happened in Antarctica, but actually nobody had, uh, up until 2018, had ever crossed the entire continent of Antarctica. So from one uh, ice shelf all the way across the landmass to the other ice shelf, unsupported, which means no resupplies of food or fuel, unassisted, or also known as human-powered, means no, uh, no um, basically kites, no dogs, nothing to propel you other than sort of mano y mano, and then of course solo means completely alone. So it's kind of the most stripped down to bare fundamentals, just you pulling a sled with all your food uh, supplies, gear, etc., behind you for what was nearly a thousand mile journey. And people had tried, um, you know, people had actually died attempting the solo and supported crossing ahead of me. Uh, others had, you know, run out of food or fuel or had to be 
evacuated from the continent in some pretty dire circumstances. And people have often said, hey, people have been trying this for 100 years. This thing is impossible because if you're going to take enough food to make it across, your sled's going to start at 600 pounds. You're never going to be able to pull it anywhere. My sled started at 375 pounds, and I still managed to lose, you know, 30, 40 pounds of body weight. You know, I was a bag of bones at the end, just barely enough uh, food to make it across. Crazy, crazy. Before I dive deeper on that, just to level set, other things you've done. I talked about the uh, uh, other other feats you have. Was seven summits, uh, the Explorers Grand Slam. Can you give us some of the some of the feats within those? So like Everest, so on and so forth. What else have you done? Yeah, so the Explorers Grand Slam is climbing the seven summits, which is the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. So that's Everest, that's Denali, North America, Kilimanjaro, et cetera. And then Explorers Grand Slam combines the seven summits as well as expeditions to both the North Pole and South Pole. And so that record was me doing them consecutively as fast as possible. You mentioned the solo crossing of Antarctica. I have 10 world records total. Ones you didn't mention, I was the first person in history to row a boat across Drake Passage. So the Drake Passage is the most treacherous stretch of ocean in the world. That's from the southern tip of South America to Antarctica. And I did that in a small, tiny little rowboat with a few others, 40-foot swells, uh, you know, freezing cold currents, uh, and an open-hole rowboat. So if we want to get into some stories, there's certainly some stories there. And then actually, we're sitting here in Stowe, Vermont, and the last time I was here, I was doing this project called the uh, 50 High Point. So in the summer of 2018, I set the speed record for climbing the tallest mountain in each of the 50 U.S. states consecutively. So I climbed all 50 uh, peaks in uh, 21 days. The previous world record had been 42 days, so I halved it. And uh, I was here at Mount Mansfield, which is the tallest point in Vermont, is is right nearby here. So um, crazy. Yeah. You ended that in your home state, right? Portland? Yeah, I finished that in uh, Oregon. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And Portland, for those who have been there, you kind of look up at Mount Hood uh, from the city. So as a kid, I, you know, I looked up at that mountain my whole life, and that's the tallest point in Oregon. So we arranged the route so that I could finish uh, on the summit of Mount Hood, which was uh, really fun to finish uh, on home turf, so to speak crazy. You've um, rightfully so <clears throat> received a lot of praise for what you've done. You've been on Rogan a couple of times. I think you were on Jimmy Fallon. I've seen you on Ed Milet and Impulsive, all these huge shows, huge podcasts, but it doesn't come without controversy. So National Geographic published an article, The Problem with Colin O'Brady is the name of the article. And dude, it's a hit piece. It's a full-on long hit piece. What's at the heart of that? Because I read you, you po posted a response to it, about 16 pages on your website to each allegation going against your accomplishment. Where did it come from? Do you have any sense of where this came from? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It was an interesting moment, you know, so much, so much praise, you know, so much, you know, excitement, so much success in the, you know, media and press, you know, there's eight front page New York Times articles, you know, all these, you know, very, very credible, basically outlets have, you know, covered this and researched it and known all the ins and the outs of it. And I share all my expeditions super transparently. So I've always really prided myself on that, which means I'm actually on social media sharing them while they're happening. That yeah. if you look at my social media, it's, you know, it's not like some uh, you know, glitzy, oh, everything's great. It's like me crying, I'm upset, I'm <laughs> lost, I'm hurt, you know, all all the good and the bad. And I've, I've failed at several projects as well, which is, you know, part of, part of it. You know, you get out there, you try stuff actually just three weeks ago, fell into a crevasse in Antarctica and nearly died on a project out there. That was literally in the last month. So, but yeah, that was an interesting moment. You know, Nat Geo had tried to get exclusive rights or try to get more access to me during that expedition. And we had given that to the New York Times. And so I don't know if there was some frustration there with access. And so they tried to kind of take a different angle. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's something I've thought about a lot uh, several years ago, but kind of bringing my mind back to there. Yeah, it was disappointing. There's, you know, a core group of polar explorers who really have prided themselves on making a life in that space. It's their whole sort of livelihood. That's their whole life. And I kind of popped into that world, set this record and kind of 
also then pretty much like walked away from that world. It's not just the only thing that I sort of think of myself as. Yeah. And so I think that there was, you know, potentially some envy or jealousy or frustration, but it was really unfortunate. You know, I, I, I appreciate the pen. I appreciate free speech. I appreciate being able to share authentically. And of course, people that are successful in the world. I know we're sitting in a room full of, you know, high net worth individuals and usually with some amount of people being frustrated or disappointed or wanting to feel competitive with you. Where it, for me, it uh, crossed the line was where they really, it was just purely lying. So one example, and, and Natchi ultimately had to retract this, they actually took a sentence from page 50 of my book and a sentence from like 200, page 250 of my book and combined them into one sentence under quotation to like completely misquote me to open up this piece. And I had to respond with 16 pages because there was literally that many true journalists Journalistic what was inaccuracies that? What did they say in that, in that when they pieced the two together? Oh, God, it's been so long. It's like, <laughs> I thought about this in a while. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was essentially something about that I was... Uh, honestly, I can't remember what that quote okay. was, if no, I'm honest. Okay. But what's interesting, you mentioned Rogan, so it was kind of funny. Uh, that Nat Geo piece comes out, and I'm going on Rogan the second time I'm there, and it's always fun to sit down with Joe. You know, obviously incredible reach, but also just such a fun interview always. And I had done the interview a year before that about my Antarctica crossing, and I was coming back on, had just done the Drake Passage Row, and my book, The Impossible First, had come out. It had become a New York Times bestseller, and he was excited to get me back on. And he sits down, you can watch this, because obviously it's on Rogan, He's like, he's like, opens the interview. He's like, you know, 10 million people listening or whatever. And he's like, bro, did you come on here and lie to me a year ago? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, buckle up. And, you know, like, and uh, it's an interesting moment, of course, a high stakes moment, but sure. I was very confident in my, you know, just the truth. And I was, I just said to him, I said, and you can hear the, the, the um, episode back. I said, Joe, you know what? We got Jamie here, you know, in the studio, he pulls up all the stuff on the computer. I was like, let's just break this down. Let's just yeah. look at the facts. So, you know, here, here's something that they're saying happened. And it was missed quoted and treated like let's pull it up and so he starts kind of going through takes 15 minutes and goes through point but Jamie pull this up Jamie they're saying this pull this other thing up Jamie you know pull this other thing up and you know Joe came in there because you know Joe's not afraid to be controversial or come down on somebody if he does thinks it's wrong right he's yeah. not he's the guy that's not pulling punches yeah. and about 15 minutes into the uh, interview he looks at me and he goes all right guys I've looked at this here's what I think I don't know if we can say profanity but I'm just gonna quote Joe Rogan it, and he goes it. fuck Matt Geo." <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, and he literally said on the air, he was like, and look, I, res I respect Nat Geo as an outlet. It's something that I have looked up to a lot in my life, which was why that really hurt that they took this tactic. But Joe was like, fuck Nat Geo. And he's like, honestly, man, there's so many more people listening to this than reading that. But it's a thing, you know, I think that, you know, moving away from the specifics of that, I think that as human nature, it's an interesting thing, which is 99% of something can be going so well, so well, right? Your company can going so well, or, you know, you put up a post and a hundred people say super, oh, you ran the marathon i'm proud of you congratulations this that and there and then like one of your buddies that you haven't talked to in 20 years something like running is stupid yeah right and it's like the only thing that you can like loop on in your brain like our brains are patterned to kind of stick with the negativity so for me i'm always looking for moments of growth in my expeditions in my businesses things that have gone well and haven't and that was a moment you know it was four or five years ago now that it was heartbreaking when it happened and I learned a ton from it. And it was nice to have someone like Joe Rogan look yeah. at the facts and others and be like, wait, this doesn't make sense. And ultimately, Nat Geo, although they didn't fully take the article down, they no. actually had to retract several pieces of it and be like, oh, which is not a good look for a journalistic integrity. But unfortunately, the, the cat was out of the bag and it's hard to retract that. So it's, a, it's the world we live in these days of you know, you know catchy headlines and things yeah. like that. And one other thing that... that uh, that was helpful in that moment, I was supposed, was, you know, a lot of people reached out to me, friends, 
mentors, you know, business mentors, people I look up to. And the common recurring theme, and since we're sitting in such a room with so many successful people here, I would be curious if people feel the same way. But the common refrain from the people that had had a lot of success in their life was I got a bunch of texts that says, congratulations, or you actually did something worthy of note, or you made it, you know, kind of vibes, which was like, no one's starting to criticize you if you're doing nothing of consequence. It's only the time when you actually step in the arena, have some success, make a name for yourself that all of a sudden you are a credible threat or people want to in some way, shape or form kind of try to you know, compete with you, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and although that didn't necessarily make it sting less in the time, it's an interesting thing, like I said, of people to look up to to be like, oh, actually, this is a sign of success. Yeah, and this is yeah. what comes with it. <clears throat> Those who know will congratulate. Those who, who haven't done it will, will stab at you. Sure. And you can see it in that. I mean, look, I, I went through the 16-page, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the response. Response, thank you, to, to, your, uh, to the Nat Geo article. And there was just... I, and I read the book. So one of the things I was in the board, I don't know how to say this, Borge Ausland, is that his name? Yeah. All right, so this guy crossed the, the continent of Antarctica in a different way, and I want you to delineate that here in a moment, a very different way than you did. But it was, it was almost said, or it was said in the article, that you didn't really pay homage to him. But there's pages of you paying homage to this guy throughout the book. So that was the first part for me, like, okay, going into it open eyes, okay, is this guy crazy? Is Nat Geo crazy? What's, what's the truth here? I read the book, and I heard his name mentioned a million times glowingly by you. So that made me obviously say, wow, Nat Geo feels like a hit piece. What's the difference though, between you and Borg Ausland as far as crossing Antarctica? Yeah, so Borga Ausland is a Norwegian explorer, still alive today, but really pro pro prolific expeditions in the late 90s and early 2000s, and did some incredible things. And so it's, I, I appreciate that yeah, reflection back, because it was so funny when I launched that project, literally on my website that I launched, which I wrote, God, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I don't, you know, I don't feel like I you know, even can live up to what others have done. And it lists like five people that have been like huge historical uh, you know, uh, inspirations to me. And one of them was very notably Borg Ausland. And what he did in 1997, incredible project, which was he crossed the continent of Antarctica, not just the landmass, but also the ice shelf. So Antarctica is has surrounded by frozen ice. Some of that is sea ice, right? So going all the way out to the sea, which makes it even further distance. What I crossed was the landmass, not all of the sea ice, because you could barely make it across the landmass. But what, how he was able to do that was he used kites. So he used kites to propel him. So there was days when he went 100 miles or 150, I can't forget the exact distance, but 125, 100, yeah. yeah, like long, 100 plus mile days, you know, holding on to a kite, like you see people being kite skiing, which is incredible in its own way and an incredible mode of travel in Antarctica. I mean, really impressive. I mean, he went significantly further distance because he was doing the ice shelves. He was solo. He was using these kites. I mean, it's amazing. But the direct comparison that came from there was really strange. Like people were like, well, he's not giving Borg Ausland enough credibility. It's like, well, not only did I mention him a million times in my book and this, the day I finished the crossing on my Instagram. I didn't know about any of this controversy and it didn't happen until like a year later right, or something sure. like that. But I've had Instagram posts like, wow, I did it. I couldn't be here without the inspiration of Borg Alsa. <laughs> it's just forefront of my mind. But the comparison would be, you know, comparing somebody sailing across an ocean with a sailboat versus swimming across it or kayaking across it or right. something like that. They're just really apples and oranges, two different things. And now, interestingly enough, retroactively, and Nat Geo is not writing an article about this, unfortunately, but the polar community realizing that there was some sort of 
confusion here, trying to kind of clean this up, have now actually very clearly delineated world records using kites and world records and world firsts not using kites, unassisted, unsupported, sure. are just two entirely different things, right? It's they're they're not they're not conflating them. The media chose to basically paint yeah. me against Sam Collins, not this and that, and this guy went further and that. It's like literally doing a different sport, you know. It's like so again, it's unfortunate, but you know, it, in large part, it hasn't had a hugely negative effect. It's no. just kind of part part it, of the process. And like I said, that 99 to 1% example, it's like this expedition ultimately generated 2 billion earned media impressions. It was the most widely viewed expedition in modern history um, okay. through a media lens. And there's one article that says something, you know, partially negative and there's thousands that say something otherwise. And all of those thousands of sources also are very, very, very credible, well-researched, yeah. fact-checked sources. And so, you know, we can let that be in the public domain. I don't know about the impressions. I want to get into the business of this in a second. Yeah. Just before we move off of this one last point of contention that was made, and it was interesting. So there's, if you read the article, it's implied that like you got about 300 miles out from the edge of the continent and you just jumped on a road, right? <laughs> like there's like, like a paved road that runs to the end. And I saw your, the other guy that was doing this expedition at the same time as you, which was not planned, I know, uh, Captain Lou Rudd, yeah. who was a couple days behind you, he made mention, I think it was even in an email, that, yeah, it's a solo. It's, it's not smart. He has three kids himself. It's not smart for me to not use this area that they call this road. I can't remember the name of the road. Yeah, it's the Leverett Glacier, the, Sp the South Pole Overland Traverse. But explain the road. He did the same, yeah. you did the same. What is the road? Because I'm picturing yeah. like, oh, nicely paved, right. or just so a little again, bit of ice on the road. This is the craziest thing. Uber this, and this, is, and and this is actually where Joe Rogan actually finally lost it on the interview and was like, this is ridiculous. So essentially what happens is there's a base called McMurder, which is a U.S. base in Antarctica, which is on the coast, on the Ross Ice Shelf. And then there's a South Pole, which is also a U.S. base that's controlled there. And between those two, I forget the distance, but it's like 600 miles or something like that. It's far. And to re resupply the South Pole base, a couple times a year, they drive this convoy, which is several like massive trucks, essentially across um, 600 miles of Antarctic ice. And for many years, the logistics were super complicated. So they were trying to find the route that had the least crevasses that they could credibly or safely take these massive trucks, super, super dangerous to drive heavy machinery anywhere in Antarctica. Trucks would get stuck, they'd fall in crevasses. I mean, it's like just treacherous place to be on a, as a one person on skis, let alone, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds truck. Right. So I forget the era, but like in the 90s or something like that, they've kind of, like, kind of figured out by putting together and cobbling together GPS waypoints in this, this route that they felt they could pretty safely take through there. The funny part about it is the way that they try to portray that to try to take me down is as if there's like literally like a pavement and a road, cars like going back and forth. Literally they drive this like once or twice a year. I never saw this convoy ever and crazy. Antarctica is the second someone drives across or your skis go across, sometimes within a matter of minutes, definitely within a matter of like there's so much wind. Antarctica is the windiest continent in the entire world. And so it basically blows in and drifts in the snow immediately. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and so it, they basically were like, oh, he's out on this thing following these trucks and they can just pick him up and drive him around and like all this kind of stuff. Actually what happened, and I feel even more strongly about this now that a month after what happened to me last month is as a solo person on a glacier, basically in mountaineering, you see people roped to each other. And that's because one of the main reasons if you fall in a crevasse, you need to be roped to somebody else. Or if you'll fall in unroped, you can die. It's a hugely, hugely risky to do that. And so when planning the route, Captain Lou and I both separate from each other, as well as with the logistics operator who's flying the plane said, going down the Leverett Glacier, which is where this convoy drives, 
is the safest. You're not going to see probably any of their like tire tracks. There's certainly no paved road. It's ice. It's endless <laughs> Antarctic ice that they drive on. Yeah. But they have done ground penetrating radar on it, which means there's less likely chances of an unroped crevasse fall, which would be fatal. Now, since then, my mentor in the polar in the polar um, space died in an unroped crevasse fall in oh, wow. Greenland. And a month ago, I was in Antarctica doing a different project, and I fell into a crevasse. I literally fell overhead into a crevasse wow. um, by myself alone. Um, I was I pushed my body up against both sides of the you know ice wall of this, and I was dangling over 400 feet of air. And my sled was w- one inch from teetering 200 pounds down on my head, pulling me to the bottom of this crevasse. I literally just survived a near fatal crevasse fall. And the reason that we were on that glacier in the first place is try to avoid that. So it was a funny thing. Like Joe's like, show me a picture of this. Like show me a picture of this like area, right? And you're yeah. like, dude, that looks like the rest of Antarctica <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And so again, it's a stupidest thing and honestly I have spent very little time even thinking about or talking about it in the, in many years so but uh, yeah it was a, a silly a silly thing and you know sometimes people are grasping at straws to try yeah. to just take others down it's it's unfortunate thing but for me you know in all my businesses and all my work you know for me it's all about you know being authentic being honest in, in what you do and having that ripple effect of positivity and I think that we all know from this room even with you know businesses and brands like if you try to be everything for every single person you're probably going to get nowhere and sometimes you got to have to, you know, who are my customers or, you know, what's my total available market and who am I really trying to add value for? Or what's the product market fit, right? We ask ourselves these questions and most successful businesses look like actually knowing that and the underlying and how it connects to this is you can't make every single person happy. So if there's 30 polar explorers that are angry about something in Nor- Norway and trying to it's like, it is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Let's talk about the business of all of this. You talk a lot about it, and I, I, this is near and dear to my heart, the aligning passion and purpose with what you do on a daily basis, right? With earning income, with making a living, and you've done that, obviously. When you set out to do any of these things, let's just, you know, crossing Antarctica or, or the Explorers uh, Grand Slam or whatever it might be, you get sponsors like Nike, like Columbia, so on and so forth to come on board with you. And I get the pitch around the why, like this is it, aligning missions, so on and so forth. But how much, you have a book, for instance, how much planning is going into, so hey, uh, Nike, I'm gonna cross this, I'm gonna do all of these things, cross Antarctica, I'm gonna write a book, this, that, and the other. I'm curious, what is Nike investing in? Are they just getting, hey, we're getting impressions, you mentioned them, they're somewhere on a screen when people are watching you, like, can you talk about the business planning and prep that you do, the physical planning I get, but like, what's the business planning about going on an expedition like this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously case by case and has been very different over different phases of my career. But, you know, in the early days, certainly brand partnerships was one way to... That's how I built my first project was trying to get, you know, brands excited about this idea. Obviously, there's natural fits with some endemic brands like outdoor companies. Hey, I need to go to the tallest peak in each of these seven continents. I have to wear something. There's going to be media and press around this. Put me in Columbia or Mountain Hardware or whatever jacket. That'll be photographed and, you know, put there. You take those numbers, obviously, you know, the Impossible First Expedition Antarctica was successful beyond even our wildest dreams, although we aimed high with that. You know, two billion earned media impressions is pretty hard to recreate the virality of that, although we did certainly, you know, try to orchestrate that as best as we can. 
But the ROI on that, you know, the couple of brands that were on the outside of my sled that were on the front page of the New York Times and Fallon and all the you know places that you mentioned, Rogan, et cetera, you know, there's about you know hundred million dollars of you know earned media visibility from that. And earned media is even more powerful than paid media, of course, because sure. people are invested in the actual thing that's happening. So that's that is like an edge case, like ROI for sure. But really it's trying to find people what I found with sort of aligned values, right? So for, for Nike, for example, they're not in the outdoor space at all. Mm. But I was doing a campaign at the time and I still have. I have a nonprofit where I've, you know, I've had over a million students at this point enrolled in my nonprofit programs around getting outside, moving their bodies, living active and healthy lives. I live in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, you know, basically told this story uh, from the stage, but I'll retell it again here, which yeah. is, so I'm, I'm dreaming up this project, my first project ever, and the, the, the budget was 500K. And at the time I had $10,000. And my wife and I had just gotten engaged and I had this idea, I wanna you know, set the Explorers Grand Slam world record and climb all these mountains and we maybe we should start this nonprofit and we got like really excited. But for the entrepreneurs in the room or folks listening, like it was the next morning after that, we woke up in our one bedroom apartment and all the negativity starts seeping into our mind. We're like, wait, we have no money, we have no background on this, we have no idea how to start a nonprofit, we have no, like, this is just not gonna work. You know, I, equate it to you know somebody who's out drinking with their buddy on a Saturday night and get fired up like yo we're gonna run the New York City Marathon next year it's gonna be epic we're gonna train it's gonna be whatever and they wake up the following morning on Sunday morning a little hungover and they're like bro I'm not training for that all year like <laughs> it's not gonna work you know and so we do this to ourselves this is part of to, right? We start to think about all the things why we can't do something. And that stops people in their tracks. Fear of fear of failure, right? Feel of fear feel of failure is, is real. And we create all the the barriers that we have in front of it. In this case, Jenna looks at me and she goes, Well, if you're gonna try to raise five hundred K, you better at least have a nice website that looks like you're deserving of five hundred K. And so we put all of our money into brand assets, create a brand for this, create a mission around the nonprofit. You know, basically at the time this dates the story a little bit, but it wasn't that long ago, it's twenty fifteen, but we had that actually hand out printed materials that we wanted to like leave with people. So we had, you know, a little booklet that we could hand out and business cards and kind of like created an entire brand around this that at the time we called Beyond 7-2, which lives on as the name of our nonprofit. And then we started pitching people. And we thought, okay, we're going to have this great brand or this vision. All of a sudden, people start going to this, no, no, no. <laughs> like, I don't have any media followers at the time. I have like no network. I've never climbed these mountains. So the success seems very limited. And we just hear every version of no, like over and over and over and over again. And it's a couple months before we're getting ready to do the expedition. But Jenna looks at me and she goes, look, like we're 400K short. You know, we've cobbled together 100K in sponsorship at this point, friends, family, a couple of small, you know, smaller checks, but we're so far short, you know, 80% short. Mine invites me to uh, a spin class at 24 hour fitness. He's like, come to this spin class with me. And I'm like, bro, I'm a professional athlete I'm gonna go with spin class on a Sunday afternoon at a 24-hour fitness like you know my <laughs> ego is getting the better of me and he's like just come trust me there's this really cool woman I want you to meet so we walk into the spin class after he convinces me and we go in there and there's this woman she's probably in her mid-50s she's already you know the class hasn't started but she's already ripping it hard on her bike she's sweating she's super ripped fit and she introduces me Colin this is Kathy she set a world record and she laughs it off. She goes, oh, that was, that was, you know, decades ago, you know? And she's like, it was, I was like, what was it in? And she goes, oh, I had the world record in the 5K, which is quite impressive, you know, to have that 5K world record. And I was like, wow. And he, my buddy Angela goes, tell her, tell her about what you're doing. So I gave her this like 30 second spiel, you know? You know, I, I, I wasn't pitching to her, but I had had the door slammed in my face 999 times previously. And so it was uh, just, you know, on the tip of my tongue. And I said, oh, I'm climbing these mountains and I've got this nonprofit and I'm really, you know, trying to figure it all out. And she's like, oh, that's awesome. Spin class starts. 
hour. Do the whole spin class. I'm like, what am I doing? This 24-hour fitness, the spin class, like what's going on here? I get off the bike, and as I'm wiping down my bike, she waves me over, and she goes, hey, Colin, come back over here. She goes, I've been thinking about it. this. is such a cool project. Like, I really wish you the best success on that. And she goes, I want you to tell my husband about it. He loves this kind of stuff. And she waves this other guy over. I didn't realize she was with him when they weren't on the same bikes next to each other when I got there. This guy comes over, and he introduced himself, shakes, his, shakes my hand, and he goes, what, what it's all about? She goes, tell him. And again, I just rattle off 30 seconds, just a quick little, you know, oh, I'm climbing these mountains, this, that. And he just says to me, he goes, well, are you looking for sponsors by any chance? Well, indeed I am. <laughs> and he's like, I think the company I work for might be able to help you. And I was like, amazing. You know, where do you work? And he's like, I work at Nike. And, you know, we're in Portland, Oregon. That's where I grew up. But I think athletes anywhere, that's probably like the dream scenario, right? Yeah. And certainly for many. And I can't believe my good luck. I'm like, amazing. And he was like, he's like, yeah, let me, um, let me get you a business card. And if you have a website or something, you can email it to me and we can maybe talk. And I'm like, yes, I do have a website, turns <laughs> out. And uh, so he hands me his business card. And I look down at it. And it says, Mark Parker, CEO Nike. Just so happens that uh, I guess he gets so, dis uh, we've become friends, but that he gets so disrupted at Nike, people want to come up and talk to him and pitch him stuff and all this sort of stuff that he actually just like low-key works out at like this you know, local gym on the outskirts of Portland. And I'm talking to the CEO of Nike. But what's the essence? Like what's the lesson in the business case study in that is some people think that like winning, like there's this innate intrinsic quality to winning. Like winners win, they always get it right. The people we see having success have just crushed it. And I flip that on its head, which is I love to say, winners lose the most. I fundamentally believe winners lose the most. I mean, I'm in a room full of winners right now by virtue of the fact you're sitting here, you've crushed it. And I guarantee if any one of you came up here and had the mic, I'd be like, where have you failed? Tell me all the times that it didn't work. How did you get through it? Failure plus perseverance equals success. There's not this, this infinite win streak. And when I realized retrospect, Effectively is the 999 times that I went and got no for this. I didn't know it, but I was refining my pitch for the 30 seconds that really matter that could be a force multiplier in my career. And that certainly set me on their way. But coming back to your initial question about, you know, why would Nike sponsor it? It was interesting. It wasn't brand allied for them in right. terms of the endemic sports, you know, that they have, you know, golf and they have, you know, right. running basketball. and basketball yeah, and sure. all that kind of stuff, right? But they have a large pool of money that's called the Global Community Impact. I think that's the Jeez, I think that's the, forgive me if I got that wrong, but something of that nature. Yeah. Essentially, where they give a percentage of their pre-tax profits to not necessarily nonprofit programs, but to people that are having impact in the community. So nice. they build basketball courts at schools. They, you know, during the South Africa World Cup, built all these soccer stadiums and stuff like that with Nike branding, but they're basically putting it money back into the community. And they were like, this is a perfect alignment for this initiative. We are trying to do more with active, healthy lives. At the time, it was the Obama White House, and so the Obama White House with Let's Move and Michelle Obama was a hugely, you know, prolific sort of movement campaign that they had partnered on, and it just aligned with them. And so for me and all of these projects, it's how can I find, and this is no different than building a business, who are the stakeholders, where are people mission and vision aligned, and how can you align them around a singular mission around this? And all of a sudden with, you know, I had the idea and the vision, and I had put in the work to be like, I am ready to do this. It wasn't like a pie-in-the-sky idea. If I had pitched Mark Parker and wasn't like ready to leave on this expedition, he wasn't writing me a check. He's like, oh, you're leaving in six weeks, mm -hmm. and you You've built this and you've trained and you're ready. All the things are prepared to go. Great. We can be there. We can write that check to help you get there. And it has had a huge, you know, uplift in my career, you know, yeah. 10 years on, you know, obviously I've done all sorts of things with that sort of initial help. But that's just one example. I mean, there's, again, we could talk all day about the business fundamentals of that, sure. but it really is lots of different ways to create that money. And then over time might be an interesting thing to explore, depending on what you want to talk about here, but is how to not just be somebody receiving, you know, sponsorship dollars are amazing 
for a marketing ROI. But as my career has progressed and as I've had more credibility and stature in the world and success in different verticals from Hollywood to books, yeah. whatever, it's how can then I generate my own businesses off of my name, image, and likeness. Well, yeah. I wanted to dive into that because yeah. that's interesting. If I, if I heard right or know right, you are or have been a member of YPO, correct? Yeah, I'm in YPO. Yep. So YPO. Anybody here in YPO? couple guys. So YPO has pretty, pretty high standards for, for entry. It's not, you know, you have to have a certain number of employees. You have to have a certain number of, a certain amount of revenue, 10 or 15 million a year in revenue yeah. to be a member of YPO and of course be under 40. So those are, those are their, uh, so yeah, you're an adventurer, right? You're a guy that skis across Antarctica with a sled. What are the, what does that brand, what does that awareness create such that you have businesses that would qualify for something like YPO? In other words, what are the businesses ancillary to your brand? Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's been interesting, and at different phases, it's kind of flexes and flexes down in, in different ways. So the, there's several different verticals, but basically, you know, publishing is you know one one revenue stream. You own the publishing, the publishing rights. Well, I work with, uh, I do own all the rights to my stuff, and, I've, and then option that to Hollywood for Hollywood for Films. So then I have a whole produ production entity, so a bunch of unscripted projects, a bunch of projects. Uh, I'm a host of a TV series. I am uh, basically create this documentary called The Impossible Row. My project with Discovery, yep. Searchlight Pictures, which is five of the last ten best picture films, I've heard of have uh, come out of them. They've optioned the rights with Danny Boyle, who's an Academy Award winning director, created Train Spotting, created um, Slumdog Millionaire, um, for the rights of Impossible First. That I'm executive producer on that as, as we go through the Got process. It. And just to be clear on this, life. are you is your production company solely to produce your work, or do you do you produce the work of other um, people in your space, or how does that look? Yeah, right mostly now? mostly my own work. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of this derivative off my own name is like so. That's again, that's one entity. Sure. Twenty nine twenty nine is uh, familiar. People are familiar with twenty nine twenty nine. Ever seeing, but me, Jesse Itzler, and Mark Hodelik, who's also in YPO, are uh, the co-founders of that business. So that's an events property, which basically what that is, is it's an events company where the it's a challenge, essentially. So yeah. you have 36 hours to climb the equivalent of Mount Everest, which is the number 29,029 feet. And it's uh, it's been really fun business to build over time. You know, back in 2017, we did our very first event. We didn't know if anyone would like it or the idea would make sense or we'd actually never done it. And we started it in Stratton, Vermont, actually, is our just down the road from where yeah. we are right now. And that has, you know, grown into a really successful business uh, for for us, which has been amazing. Now we we have put our events on sale for 2024, all of our 2024 events on December 1st of 2023, and they all sold out in six minutes. Yeah. And it's a $6,000 ticket. You know, we have thousands and thousands, you know, people that have participated in our events over time. So anyways, that that's a fun business. What's your role in that built. business? Just so I, yeah, I have a sense of it. What's your role in 29029? Yeah, the three of us are co-founders. And so, yeah, basically uh, as, as stewards of, of the business and the community. And obviously we have a full-time team that um, works, you know, on all those pieces as well as flexes up and flexes down um, for our, <laughs> you know, events themselves. Sure. And so, yeah, that, that's been really fun. And, you know, not only that's in the physical event space, but we've been launching, you know, sort of a B2B product there in the digital space that we created kind of during COVID. And so there's other tentacles of that, you know, outside the scope of just just that. Some work in the nutrition space that I'm not doing anymore, but, you know, worked in that space for a while. So, yeah, there's basically, anyways, uh, there's the, to pull up all the different uh, No, that's okay. Nutrition. Business, but. The, so, you you talked in the book, you talked a lot about Colin bars, these sort of nutrition, nutrient-dense, high-calorie yep. bars that you could take on this expedition, and I'm sure other people could use it as well. Did that become the nutrition brand? Like, what, what's the nutrition brand that you were you were working on, and were Colin bars a component of that? Yeah, we, um, we worked on it for a long time. 
time uh, with a, as a as with in partnership with one of my sponsors, Standard Process, and now they've continued to run with it. But yeah, I was involved with that for a while. Um, it was basically we created these custom bars um, that were basically created just for me in Antarctica, uh, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And then from that, basically, you know, worked to basically create a retail product uh, around that space, um, which was which was fun to bring to life and create that brand. Um, you know, incubated underneath um, what those guys are doing over there. So yeah. So yeah. it sounds like right now production work and the Hollywood space that you're, the things you're doing there and 29029 sound like your biggest ventures that you're involved in right now. Uh, speaking and then the 12 hour walk is also in itself a large business as well. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. The, the adventure business itself, is that all under an entity? So everything you do from an adventure perspective, is that a brand entity or do you have different businesses I've, every time you launch a different adventure that you're going to go on? Uh, no, they all like are housed under one LLC, but I have three different LLCs. So three different, you know, basically, um, I guess three different business entities, and then of course, then Twenty Nine Twine, some of these others that are joint ventures with others, sit sort of in their own own spaces, kind of a bunch of side by side entities. But each expedition is not its own entity. Gotcha. Yeah. What's the next adventure that you're prepping for right now? Right now, I'm getting ready to in June. I'm going to attempt to try to be the fastest person to ride my bike across America. So I, uh, me, and a buddy of mine actually has a pair. So we're doing something called the Race Across America, which is called RAM. is actually a race that exists every single year. And so it's a set route. It starts in Oceanside, California, essentially San Diego, and finishes in Atlantic City, um, about 3,000 miles, give or take. Um, and we're going to attempt to be the fastest people to ever complete the Race Across America as a pairs team. So one of us always riding kind of, you know, two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off, and try to complete that in under six days. All right. You talk about people living between four and six on a scale of one to 10. I love this point that you make pretty much. But people are, are, are in this comfort zone. They don't want to get out of it. They don't want to experience the ones, which by experiencing the ones is the only way that you get the tens. I think that's a great, great point, And it resonates a lot with me. You're also a new dad. So when I think about your ones from the past, like they're extreme, like half your body burned, jumping a fiery rope at one point, uh, falling into holes in Greenland, falling into holes in Antarctica and so on and so forth. But your tens are completing this, this, uh, you know, this entire expedition that you just did in Antarctica, the, the seven summits, all of that stuff. As a new dad, son's going to be one in June, I believe, correct? Yeah, Do my your son one, was born in June, yeah. Do your ones and tens change? Do you see more or less risk in it or is it, I got to go and be me. Well, let's frame that point, I think, because you're you're, spe you're speaking about something then in sort of a jargony way that uh, does not frame for no, the no, audience, no, right? Yeah. So, you know, after, you know, completing many of these expeditions and really, you know, kind of stretching outside of my comfort zone, and then what I found is, you know, I've hit some really low moments in my expeditions, right? Being in Antarctica, being freezing cold, being afraid, wanting to give up, or being in my rowboat, you know, in the middle of a massive storm and just kind of getting beat down, you know, by the weather. It's just... Um, really, really brutal. Um, what I've realized, but I get to the end of these expeditions and I have this, this success, right? Mm -hmm. I have these like high peak moments. When I kind of realize that I feel like life is kind of on this spectrum, we experience it and I kind of equate it to this experience of one to 10. You know, one being our lowest low moments, right? And 10 being our high highs. Um, and those ones, I realize, are connected to our 10s. We don't really get to the 10s in spite of our ones, but we get there because of our ones. Yeah. But too often, I think, in the world, people are kind of stuck in what I call this zone of comfortable complacency between four and six, right? You know, people just kind of mail it in. They go to the job that they don't love, they don't hate. They're just kind of a five, a five, a five every single day. Um, you know, relationships can be that way when you're kind of coexisting, but there's really not a lot of passion. There's just kind of five, 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 just kind of getting through the day. And... 
I find that people do that more often than not because they're so afraid to experience any discomfort, mm -hmm. right? They're afraid to experience discomfort um, and sort of that downside risk, you know, that, that, that pain, that, 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 that dif difficulty. And so they hedge towards comfort. But what I realize happens, it's like a pendulum swinging. When you take the ones or the twos off the table, you're also taking the nines and the tens off the table, right? You, get, you take away that energy by staying so comfortable and safe. And so for me, that reframe on that, what I love to share is like, you know, embrace those ones and tens, you know, go do things that are outside of your comfort zone and seek that discomfort. And when I do experience those, look, it's not like I'm like some masochist where I'm like, oh man, that this pain is so great. But when I do feel that difficulty, that frustration, those, you know, setbacks, you know, and we've talked about some difficulties in my career that I've gone through, right? Those moments I go like, now I can smile at them. I'm like, oh, this sucks. Like I'm experiencing a one. But ah, like I kind of smile going like, oh, that means I've opened up the doorway to a 10. Like I've done something of consequence, something of purpose. Um, and so really to me, that's a reframe that's been super powerful and has allowed me to have the courage to experience, you know, moments of discomfort knowing it's opening up the doorway to, you know, exponential success and fulfillment. Yeah. So as a dad now, does anything change on what you consider to be a 10 or a one in this regard? I'm curious, like, you know, your risk tolerance is obviously very high. Like you're You've got this 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 lust for the adventure that you go on. It's incredible. It's insane. You can read all about it in your books. But does it change at all? Have you noticed a change? Or is it like, no, I'm me. I'm going to go about the way I, I, I see things, the bike ride across America, all of that? Or do you mitigate risk at all being a dad? I Like I said, I just, just got back from a near-death experience. It's something I'm definitely <laughs> still integrating. Um, it was a very, very close call. I'm fortunate to be alive. Um, and definitely my son's life certainly flashed before my eyes in that moment. But, you know, it's not so much this uh, binary, like, I was a, before I was a father, I took on this risk, and now that I'm a father, I'm taking on, like, different risks. I think life, just like anything, it's fluid, right? You know, your, your you know, desires, your, your passions, what derives fulfillment, I think, changes over time inevitably, not just in the realm of expeditions. And so for me, you know, twofold. One, um, I was inspired by my parents, you know, living in their fullest truth. I was raised on a hippie commune. I was born a hippie commune in Olympia, Washington. My parents were super young when they had me, but ultimately, long after I had, you know, gone off to college and left the home, my parents became successful entrepreneurs. But I watched the beginnings of that. We didn't grow up with very much money when I was a kid, but I watched the beginnings of them, like, take risk, like, open a business, start that, which ended up being a successful chain of natural foods grocery stores in the Pacific Northwest. And what I take from that is that, like, the inspiration was not my parents playing it safe. Oh, we have kids now. They took the little money they had saved up for us to go to college and actually said, when you're 13 years old, sorry, we're actually going to try to start this business, which might work or it might not work. And it turned out to work by the time I was 25. It was like, you know, 10, 12 years later. <laughs> it didn't have an impact to me. But what, I, what the impact it had was watching them live their truth, their passion, right? And so for me, I would hate it if my son one day, 20 years from now, you know, cracks open one of these books and was like, wow, dad, before I was born, like you used to do a bunch of like interesting stuff. And then since I've known you, you sat on your couch and, you know, just did, did nothing. Now, of course, I'm also not just saying like, oh, I'm just going to try to take the most risky, risky, risky path like, you know, possible. But I think that there's a calibration between those things. And I really do think that not just our family members or our children, but our entire community, the people we impact are really, you know, affected by how we live our life. Right. Um, I imagine every single person in this room has had positive impact on others by actually chasing and pursuing their dreams, their goals, their passions, and the ripple effect that that builds out through community. So for me, with my family, I look at it that way. But also, 
obviously when people interview me, they're like, yeah, these 10 world records, these crazy experiences, you know, tell me about that, tell me about, you know, that, that's, that's common questioning, and I love telling those stories, but I've applied those same exact principles to all sorts of realms of my life, you know, be that business, be that, you know, publishing, you know, things like that, and that's also lighting me up, like, you know, yes, I've never walked across Antarctica before, and that was in its own, you know, creative pursuit, and then I got, you know, uh, a look, lucrative book deal to write a book, but I've never written a book before, but because of who I am, I'm like, well, I'd like to write a book, but I want to see if that can be a New York Times bestseller, and so I researched all the different, you know, learning about publishing and learning about the process and learning about writing and cultivating my passion for that and figuring out how to market a book and all those types of things, which again is maybe not as like sexy to talk about as like, you know, what was it like on day 50 when you were alone in Antarctica, but it's the same curiosity and passion. Like it's not like, it's not about like risk or thrill seeking. Yeah, it's mostly sense. about the curiosity of the full tapestry of life experiences. And as I said before, like some of them have worked out and there's all sorts of things I've done that haven't worked out and, you know, everything few and far between. No, the, the genesis of the question for me, I think a lot of people, you quoted Thoreau, right? The massive men live lives of quiet desperation. And I know in the past, I've laid that on my kids, not blaming them, but saying, this is why I can't do whatever. At one point, it was quitting a job. At one point, it was moving out of the country, so on and so forth. Well, my kids, my kids, my kids. And I've, I've overcome that in many ways, but I feel myself settling back into that mindset of like, wow, the next thing, but my kids, right? So I was just, yeah, it, it was more of a curiosity question for anybody listening right now, because I think a lot of people deal with that same thing. Man, I have this big dream, this big goal, but I got these kids. And while, while I understand and respect the need to take care of your kids as a father, you as a father, and so on, I, you know, what we don't realize sometimes, we, we, we literally are putting it, I love what you said, you're burdening your kids with, hey, dad, you wrote these books, but who the hell are you? You've been sitting on the couch the last right. 10, 15 years or whatever. So yeah, I wondered for you, and I'm glad to hear, honestly, I wonder for you if there was anything that changed in you after having a kid, but uh, it's inspiring. It's cool to hear that you're, no, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna keep going and my kids will come along with me. Of course, like you said, your kids are in your brain when you're sitting in this hole and about to fall 400 feet. Your son is in your, in your mind, I get that. But anyway, that was the genesis of the question was, uh, was I find myself slipping into that again every time I'm gonna go for the next thing, whatever that is. And you're so extreme that literally you die with things that you do. Whereas for me, I might, might lose money. I might not make as much that year or whatever, but it feels equally as scary. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was, that was that of interest. Um, we're going to wrap here in a minute and go to Q&A from the, the, the crowd here. One thing I just wanted to ask you, this is a really cool part of your story in the book about the midpoint, I think, of you crossing Antarctica. I could be wrong on that, but you get this phone call uh, at some point, uh, actually, I'm sorry. Well, your wife tells you call this number. You don't know who you're calling. You make this phone call, and it's Paul Simon on the other end. What was that all about? Can you just share that story <laughs> about calling Paul Simon in the middle of Antarctica? Why? And go into that if you don't mind. Yeah. So when I was crossing Antarctica, I um, had this thesis essentially, which is I think that I will can want to explore these places in my mind. And Antarctica is obviously desolate. It's white. Um, it's 24 hours of daylight. Um, the entire time, which is very disorienting, and it's just this endless white. There's other than kind of on the edges of the continent. There's no mountains. There's nothing to look at. It's basically staring into this just endless sea of white. Um, and kind of, you know, a lot of people thought this was a terrible idea, but I decided to delete all of my music, all of my podcasts before going in to say, hey, I don't want to have this crutch of sort of distracting my brain the whole time. I actually want to see if I can tap into the silence because through doing a lot of deep meditation, things like that, I realized when I can really tap within my own mind, body, and soul, I can enter this state of flow. 
this sort of timeless, spaceless place, which I did actually end up, um, you know, really tapping into in Antarctica, and it was really beautiful. Yeah. I will say, a few days into this expedition, I was like, man, that might have been a terrible idea to delete all the music of this podcast. But I gave myself one little, like, back of the iPhone crutch, which was, okay, Colin, delete everything. The key to life, it isn't money. It's happiness. And when you measure how happy you are, you actually become even more happy. Our friends at GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, use a very specific tool to measure their happiness. It's called the Life Happiness Index, and you can have it too. Go over to GoBundance.com LHI and take your Life Happiness Index assessment. You'll rate yourself in multiple categories on exactly how happy you are and get a custom output for you specifically that you can use in developing whatever goals you have for your life. GoBundance is the tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. And the tool GoBundance members use at the base of all of that is the Life Happiness Index. Get out there and grab life big. But take five albums with you just in case you're literally going so crazy out there in your own brain you need to hear something else. It's an interesting exercise. It's like, if you could take only five albums with you, you know, what would you name to my own parameters? But I was like, no, it was like, these weren't playlists. These weren't like, you know, mixtape, like kind of stuff. Like five albums, you know, proper full albums. I know if there's anyone, you know, under 25 listening to this, they don't even know what an album is. But um, <laughs> it's a thing that has side A, side B. You know, it's constructed to be listened to, you know, consecutively. And so I chose five albums from that were meaningful to me throughout my life. Um, it was uh, Bob Marley, Legend, uh, His Greatest Hits, Essentially, Paul Simon's Graceland. Sublime. Uh, Sublime, self-titled, uh, American Beauty by Grateful Dead, um, and then a uh, August and Everything After by The Counting Crows. And all, all wonderful albums that, you know, sort of were part of certain points of my life. I was actually born at home, uh, like I said, on a hippie commune. My mom played Bob Marley Redemption Song on repeat throughout my entire birth. Um, so that's why Bob Marley was there. My childhood, my parents played Graceland. I was born in the mid-80s, and my parents played Graceland, which came out in the mid-80s throughout my entire childhood. And to me, uh, just a masterpiece of an album. Obviously, many people agree. So anyways, on day 18, I'm out there, and I'm finally like, yo, like, I need to hear something. Like, I'm struggling in my own mind and yeah. body. Yeah. And so I put on Paul Simon's Graceland, and I play it on repeat throughout that entire day. And I, you know, it's not like I have any internet connectivity. I have a sat phone that can, like, send an image. It takes, like, 20 minutes, like a dial-up modem to send one image and, like, a little text-based caption. And I would email that back home to Jenna, my wife, and she would then post it. Um, to Instagram. And in that post on day 18, I wrote, oh, um, God, I'm going been out here a long time, and I finally just needed to listen to something. I'm actually having a solo dance party out here to Paul Simon's Graceland. And you should read the comments, because people were like, well, he's finally lost his mind, or I knew this was going to finally happen. He's finally cracked, cracked open, wide open. He's dancing around by himself in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Somehow, uh, again, there was a lot of eyeballs on this project, but that got to Paul Simon, and he heard that there was a guy wandering around in Antarctica dancing to his music. He reached, he found a way, reached out to Jenna, and so on day 35, you know, a couple weeks later, Jenna says to me, you know, we did this kind of medical check-in every single night. I'd be in my tent, and a sat phone is, again, not like chit-chatting on your iPhone with perfect connectivity. It's like crackly and delayed and whatever, but we can convey just kind of like, yeah, I'm all right, I'm alive, you know, whatever. We're hanging up, and she says to me, like, actually, I need you to do one more thing before going to bed. And I was so exhausted. Every day was so brutal. I was pulling my sled 12 hours a day, five hours of chores, setting up my tent, taking down my tent, boiling water to make me, and I was just on the edge, edge of my own, like, limit. So any one extra task, was like too much and she was like I hate to tell you this but I actually need you to do one more thing you got to call this number before you go to bed 
And I'm like, what? And she's like, just trust me. Come on, just call this number. She like tells me, rattles off this like random, you know, number. And I'm like, put it into my, so I'm like, okay, whatever. I hang up, I put it in the sat phone. This guy answers the call. He's like, hello? And I'm like, hi, um, this is Colin um, fr from Antarctica. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh my God, amazing. I've been waiting for your call. Uh, this is Paul, Paul Simon. And I literally thought to myself, I'm like, yep. I'm definitely hallucinating, for sure. <laughs> I've completely lost my mind. So anyways, it, uh, it ended up being this incredible conversation with Paul Simon, and I, and I did meet up with him in person uh, when I was back stateside. We had a dinner in New York City together, and I've, I've stayed in contact. He's an incredible guy. But the conversation we had was really unique. I wish I had it recorded. Um, but uh, from memory, it was about creativity, and art, and one of the things, again, and we've, the thematic of this, this conversation that we're having here, is he says to me, like he actually says, I mean, we're having, he says to me, he goes, how many albums do you think I've written? Hmm. And I'm like, okay, there's, I, I, think, I feel like I'm like a decent fan of Paul Simon, I'm like, okay, there's Graceland, there's Sounds of Silence, there's Bridge Over Troubled Water, you know, I'm like, a couple more I probably can't think of, you know, I don't know, like seven. And he's like, 17, and two Broadway shows. And I was like, oh, and he was like, every single one of them sounded like Graceland to me in my head when I wrote it and produced it and created it and put the same amount of effort and heart and diligence into it. You know, a billion people agreed that Graceland sounded. He goes, go read the reviews on my Broadway play, shut after a month. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an incredible lesson. Again, like I said, winners lose the most. Yeah. For him, the passion of creativity and art wasn't the outcome. It wasn't, oh, it only is great or worthwhile to me if it becomes Graceland, one of the you know, widely considered best albums of all time, right? It is the process of continuing to create art over time. And Paul Simon, to me, is somebody I really admire in that... You know, he came to fame in the late 60s. He put an album out a year ago, mm. you know? And Graceland came out 20 years after he had his first hit single. There's not a lot of people in any career, let alone music, which is highly competitive, sure. or Hollywood, that have that long-standing long longevity. And what it is is just the, the desire and the passion and the zest to create. And so for me, I'm in the middle of Antarctica having this conversation. I'm completely strung out, but it's connecting these dots and sort of this cerebral plane. Like I'm talking to you know, him about you know, excellence and creativity and passion and the pursuit. Um, and it's been fun um, to have that relationship, but also just to you know, kind of ponder what he said out there, which is like, I think the lesson and the essence was like, keep putting your art out into the world. It will be received differently by different people in different moments, but it's your art and that's what matters. That's beautiful. I appreciate it. 12 Hour Walk, other books you can find on Amazon, Audible, anywhere else you want to direct folks to find out more about you and what you're doing. Yeah, come, come say hi on Instagram. Uh, you know, The 12 Hour Walk is uh, a book that I put out recently or a year ago, but really is a call to action. So if you're looking for a one day adventure that I fundamentally believe can shift your mindset, as, as the uh, subtitle says, and help you step into your best life, it is a one day exercise that's free that anybody can do. Check out the book or the website 12hour.com because I think it is, I found it to be a game changer. People all over the world have participated in the 12 hour walk at this point. Um, and I'm really proud of the the ripple effect that it's having in, in people's life in a positive way. Chapter 10, I don't have enough time. I really like that. So yeah. great job, man. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Of course.